Well, today class is in session. Rob Dinnerman, one of uh, my all-time favorites when it comes to squash writing, squash journalism, squash history, and he's definitely a friend of the podcast. Uh, Rob's forgotten more about the game than I'll ever know, and it's great to have him back. And today we pay tribute. We do well. We do several things, uh, but today we pay tribute to the recently retired Trinity squash and U.S. squash uh, icon Paul Asiante. Uh, we also uh, look back at the college squash season, the U.S. Pro Double Circuit, U.S. Squash on the PSA Tour, and, uh, of course, he has a new book uh, out on the history of the Briggs Cup, and we get into that. Uh, as always, fascinating stuff with, with Rob Dinnerman, uh, but before we get into it, let's talk about Open Squash first, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable to everyone. You heard Ali Farag here on this very podcast. We had a great chat about Open Squash and all the great initiatives and things that they've been doing to grow the game. Well, what we have to look forward to now uh, is something really exciting. In September, Open Squash's second New York City location is scheduled to open. And right now they have a limited time offer. Two months free to the first 100 players to sign up or one month free for all signups before September with uh, an annual commitment. What's to look forward to, you may ask? Well, the prime Pearl Street location, eight new courts, lessons and training, fitness center, and a rooftop lounge. Leading in the way with the lessons and training are two of the very best out there, uh, Amir Khalifa, uh, director of Fidei Squash and Yana Shia, world number 30. They're going to be leading the way in terms of the squash uh, coaching at the new Fidei location. So if you're in New York City or you know anyone there who's keen on joining a squash club and getting into squash, or you might want to even introduce a friend to it, uh, definitely get them to check out what's going on with the Fidei location, which is opening in September. Check it out at www.opensquash.org. Now, man, I'm always excited to sit and listen to this man talk all things U.S. squash. I've been following him for years, way back in the squash talk days when he wrote those amazing uh, pieces on mostly uh, U.S. doubles and, and the hardball scene. Always enjoyed it, enjoyed reading those. And this episode uh, lives up to the hype, my hype, big time. Rob Dinnerman, episode 272. All right. Uh, well, Rob, uh, school is in session. It's so great to have you back. I think the, the last time uh, you were on, uh, I think it was episode 229, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and we were taught, we, we paid tribute to... Uh, Two two great American squash icons, Pete Bostwick and Sam Howe. I think that was the last time you were on. Um, uh, it's great to have you back. How's everything? How's life? How's your squash these days? It's okay at this point. We just finished the uh, 22-23 uh, the pro double season a couple of weeks ago, and um, and everything's uh, good. And I'm uh, sort of relaxing a little bit and looking forward to hopefully playing next year as well. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll get into the pro double scene because that's a that's a scene I used to follow quite a bit. Thanks to you uh, back in the uh, days of uh, squash talk. I mean, you had some great stories up there and it was really sort of it, it was easy to, to follow just because squash talk was um, sort of for me anyways at the time. I think for a lot of people, too, it was the go to uh, news source for for a lot of squash uh, uh, across the board, but uh, now I think, um, yeah, I guess the, the Daily Squash Report uh, 
definitely has some stuff up there about the pro double scene, but it's not as uh, visible as it once was. We'll get into that a bit later, but um, let's uh, let's begin, uh, Rob, if you don't mind. Uh, and I had Paul on the podcast about a month or so ago. It was shortly after uh, Paul Asiante was speaking about, um, and he um, he uh, retired uh, from Trinity at the end of the the college squash season. Retired uh, not from not entirely, but his duties uh, as head coach there. And uh, I mean, you know his career better than uh, than anybody probably, and you'd be able to speak to it probably better than anyone. So, uh, just wondering, uh, you know. Uh, just give us some thoughts on Paul, what a great career he had and sort of where he came from and where he is uh, now. He did have an amazing coaching career. Uh, he coached for 29 years, beginning with the 94-95 season. Uh, in fact, he was the pro at the Princeton Club of New York before that, and I would go over there quite a bit to play with him. Uh, and there was one really nice weekend in March of 94, uh, in which we practiced uh, just before that, the weekend, the third weekend of March. And during that weekend, he won the USSRA 40 and over doubles championship with Gordy Anderson. And I won the, uh, the Metropolitan Open singles championship that weekend. So we both, uh, we had a good, we had a good uh, post tournament phone call on Monday after that weekend. Uh, but he was, he was, uh, you know, he's been excellent wherever he's been. He did a great job as the pro at the Princeton Club. When the Trinity College job opened up uh, in the fall of 94, he applied for it. And uh, he had previously coached at the college level three years at Williams College and before that, 11 years as the coach at, at, at West Point. So he had plenty of college coaching experience by then. Uh, but uh, anyway, the Trinity people hired him. And uh, shortly, two, a couple of years, that was the first year actually that the colleges had switched from hardball to softball. They played hardball through the 93-94 season. Uh, and uh, for the first couple of years of college softball squash, a lot of the matches were actually on narrow hardball courts because the colleges had not had time to convert them yet. Uh, the conversion in the case of both colleges happened in the late part of the 1990s. And starting in 96-97, uh, when his first uh, great recruit, Marcus Cowie, who was a highly regarded junior from England, uh, uh, came to, to tr uh, Trinity for his freshman year, as did Preston Quick, who was pretty much the number one American junior player. Anyway, in 96-97, Trinity got to the finals of the Potter Cup, the national team championship, and lost to Harvard that year and lost to Harvard the next year. And then for 13 straight years, beginning in 98-99 and going all the way through the 2010-11 season, uh, Trinity won the Potter Cup, 13 straight Potter Cups, uh, and um, and a, a, what turned out to be a 252-match winning streak uh, before it was finally ended by Yale in a very close match in, uh, in February of 2012. Uh, that year, Princeton wound up winning the Potter Cup, beating Trinity 5-4 in a very, very emotional match at Jadwin Gymnasium, Princeton's home courts. But Trinity then won the uh, Potter Cup, they regained it in 2013, they won it again in 2015, and in 2017 and 18. A total of 17 Potter Cups and uh, 22 final round appearances in the 23-year period up through 2019. And those are all records that are, that are they're not record-breaking, they're record-shattering. Uh, and the previous, for example, the previous Consecutive years, national championship streak had been four. 
and and uh, I'm sorry, it had been five. And as I say, Trinity ended up with 13 straight. Uh, you know, the previous, uh, no, no school had ever won even 100 consecutive dual meets. Trinity won 252. So um, Paul deserves, Paul was a, first of all, tremendous recruiter, but he was also a very, very good in-game coach and in-season coach. And, uh, you know, that record speaks for itself. And um, his team almost won the Potter Cup this past year. We'll probably get to that in a little bit. Uh, but in his final, and fell just short against Harvard in a, in a memorable final. Uh, but the final act of his coaching career was not the team championship, which Trinity almost won but didn't quite. Rather, it was the season-ending individuals championship. And his player, Mohamed Sharaf, who was uh, seated either third or fourth, beat the top seed Ali Hussein, and then beat George Crown in the final. So the very final act of, Paul, of Paul's career, his player won the individuals championship, which is you know couldn't be a better way to go out. One hundred percent there, and um, you know I you know having spoken to him, and I've I've had him on the podcast a couple of times, and you'll attest to this. He's so understated for a guy that's accomplished so much. And uh, I think uh, there was one really cool story he told about uh, when he took the job. I think it was at the Naval Academy. He might have been on the, the tennis team at the time. And it was actually at West Point, not the Naval Academy. At West Academy. Point, sorry. Yeah, at West Point. Thank you. <laughs> and as I said, school was in session um, at West Point. And um, he went in there. They asked him to take over as the tennis coach. And then they also said, this is a squash court. And uh, based on that and and other uh, aspects of his history, he referred to himself as sort of a falling prey to the imposter syndrome. Now, that's that's a pretty harsh, uh, you know, reflection back on on yourself but uh talk about how understated he is i mean i mean for all that he's accomplished and uh you know he's spoken at the the new york uh, new england uh, patriot he's spoken to that team was asked to speak to them by bill belichick i mean his greatness uh, precedes him uh, uh talk about how understated he is and maybe how sort of that's a reflection uh, of, of his greatness well, he not only did he uh, did Belichick have him speak to the Patriots, he also, uh, on multiple occasions, uh, was invited to throw out the first pitch at Fenway Park, uh, following their, some of their championship seasons. Mm. Uh, and as he describes it, his uh, his control um, varied from one year to the next. Uh, but um, but but he was, uh, and he also was. He said how sort of intimidating it was to be on the mound and look at the screen out out there in the outfield. And you know his image is like seven feet or eight. You know, those those screens are very big, and he, he looked like he was seven or eight feet tall in that. And you know it, just adjusting to that whole environment. Um, so he's been honored in a, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, both both with Belichick, who I believe is a good friend of his, actually. Uh, and um, and uh, as I say, at Fenway Park, uh, he definitely is somebody who understands that the players are the ones who play the matches and he goes out of his way to give credit to them, uh, as well as to the environment that the supportive environment that he has encountered at Trinity. Uh, and he is just sort of unassuming and modest and not somebody to uh, to blow his own horn. I know that when he was elected into the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame, about 10 years ago, he made a point, first of all, of inviting as many players 
as possible, uh, any of, many of his former players as possible to attend. And he also kind of went out of his way to make the point that when you make the Hall of Fame as a player, it's all about you. But when you make the Hall of Fame as a coach, it's all about your players because they're the ones who won the matches that, you know, that recounted for the championships. And that's, I think, another example of um, of being someone who, who isn't trying to make himself out to be a heroic figure, but who deflects the praise and, and gives it to players or administrators or anyone else who's been supportive of him. Um, yeah. Now, he also mentioned that he's not uh, retiring per se. He's just uh, taking a desk across the basically in the same room across the way. Uh, but um, uh, the shoes that have to be filled there, um, who's going to be filling them? And uh, uh, how, how does that bode for, for Trinity going forward? We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, in terms of the, he definitely still, as you said, is going to remain an active figure at Trinity. He's been, been heavily involved in development and alumni relations for a long time, even while he was still the squash coach. And incidentally, for the, about the first 20 years while he was the squash coach, he was also the tennis coach. Mm. In fact, uh, the tennis courts are named the Paul A. Asayante courts. Uh, so he has been, uh, at, you know, so he's he's been involved in Trinity in a, in a multitude of ways. He just feels, I think, he's 70, his 70th birthday passed recently, and he's had uh, he's had knee replacements and hip replacements and uh, other surgeries. And he, in his statement announcing his retirement, he just said, "My body has betrayed me," and he feels that the players need a younger, sort of more physically able person to be guiding them through a season. So um, he's he's still very loyal to and going to be very much involved in in Trinity College. Uh, he just won't be coaching the squash team any longer. And in terms of his replacements, uh, that it'll be very intriguing to see whom they whom they hire. Uh, those are, as you say, big shoes. I remember when Jack Barnaby, uh, the legendary Harvard coach, retired in 1976 after 40 years as the head coach, and instantly he retired with a championship season in which his Harvard team beat a, a superior Princeton team to give him the best possible going away present. Uh, Dave Fish, whom he'd been grooming for years to be his assistant coach. Uh, got letters that whole summer, sort of gallows humor letters during that whole summer of 76, saying, you know, good luck filling the biggest shoes around. Uh, so um, <laughs> uh, my guess is whoever's named for the training job will be in a similar situation. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'm i sure they, I mean, they've announced, they put in, you know, uh, a job offer that's been posted on all the, the different squash publications uh, I don't know exactly at what stage that search is at. Um, Mustafa Hamada, who had been one of his players, class of, I think, 14 or 15, and who served for several years as, the, as an assistant coach at Princeton, uh, returned to Trinity this past autumn to become Paul's assistant during what turned out to be his last year. So I'm sure he'll be considered. Uh, but um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of interest in that position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess he would be because uh, Paul did mention his name. He might be the front runner, especially if Paul has anything to say about it. But there's so much uh, coaching talent out there and uh, so much interest uh, uh, from overseas and probably uh, stateside as well from some very uh, highly qualified. I mean, you know, Mike Way, Mike Way was who had been in England and then Canada uh, was uh, was hired, um, you know, to coach at Harvard. 
uh, he he was overseas at the time, although not as much. He he was in England, but much of his career. But he was a tremendously um, admired Canadian junior coach at the time that he was hired uh, at Harvard. And his record at Harvard has been unbelievable since. Yeah, one hundred percent, Rob. Now uh, let's talk. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, we want to wish uh, Paul uh, all the best uh, going forward. Uh, what a tremendous career he had, and what a great uh, sort of ending to it. We'll we'll talk about that that now. Let's talk a bit about the um, the college uh, season. Now, uh, Harvard um, emerged victorious in both the men's and women's teams uh, this season. And it, uh, obviously there, there's a, a quite a bit of uh, intrigue there in the men's, which you alluded to. Uh, t- talk about, uh, first of all, uh, uh, on the men's side, how things played out uh, there with that exciting finish that went down, I guess, to, it was just a one-point victory for Harvard in the end. That's right. Uh, Harvard um, has actually, for each of the past four seasons, uh, 20. 1819, 2019, 20. Then there was no season in 2021 because of the COVID. Uh, but each of the previous, the, the subsequent two years, 21, 22, and 22, 23, Harvard has won both the men's and women's national team championships, uh, um, which has only been done once before. And that was by another Harvard team in the 1990s, uh, coached by Bill Doyle. Uh, and again, I refer to the fact that Mike Way has had an incredible coaching career at, at, at Harvard, and what's happened the last four years uh, speaks to that for sure. Uh, this past, what to begin with, as a quick backdrop, in in twenty one twenty two, the season before this one, Penn badly beat pretty pretty handily beat Harvard uh, in the dual meet, and then hosted, as it turned out, in their new uh, squash center hosted the national team championships in March of 2022. They were expected to uh, to follow up their dual meet win and their undefeated overall season and win that Potter Cup, which would have been the first time in uh, in almost 40 years that Penn had won that event. Uh, but Harvard managed to beat them again. Uh, Victor Cruen had match points against him in both the fourth and fifth games of his match with Andrew Douglas. Uh, saved them both. There were some remarkably close matches there, that most of which landed in Harvard's column. And at the end, um, uh, Ido Burstein won the deciding match against Nathan Quay, three straight, but but uh, it was four all, and he won the match to give them the championship. Penn always felt that they were sort of somehow deprived or robbed of a national title that they felt they should have won. And they came into Harvard this year uh, they match with at Harvard this time. Uh, Harvard again won five four, and um, and uh, and one of their players uh, had a saved Tate Harm saved a total of, I think, nine match balls spread out over three games uh, to account for one of the Harvard wins. So Penn came into this tournament um, really thinking that that they'd fallen just short a couple of times in in mind bending fashion. And uh, and felt determined that they were going to win the championship during the season. Trinity College. This was Paul's last season. It was it, he hadn't made an announcement yet, but it was sort of an open secret that this was going to be Paul's last season. His team lost four times, which had never happened. I don't think ever for him. Uh, two of them were by seven two margins. Pretty convincing. Uh, away matches in each case against Princeton and Penn on consecutive days in January. Harvard also beat them decisively, I think seven two also. The but the but the wild card and what everybody knew 
was sort of in the picture all season was that Trinity College was going to be hosting the national team championships. And all of their losses had been away matches. And Trinity has a big advantage at home. They have absolutely rabid fans, for one thing. Anyway, when the Potter Cup began, Trinity had to play first Princeton and then Penn, and they beat them both. And they beat them both decisively. And again, it's not usual to have a team lose 7-2 during the regular season and then and then handily win the rematches of the Potter Cup tournament. So that they had enormous momentum going into the final against Harvard. And not only did they have momentum, but they but they burst out to a 3-1 lead in the final. Um, and it was almost 4-0. Four, four One of their players... Uh, uh, had a had 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 uh, yeah Abdel Ismail had had match he was up two left ten eight meaning match points against Tate Harms the same player who had rescued all those match points against him against Penn a few a few about a month or so earlier that would have made it four nothing and that would have probably been almost insurmountable uh, Harms somehow saved match balls and and uh, and won that match uh, uh, and uh, and. Uh, Trinity then won the next match, but there were two following. There were two matches that followed, in which in both of which the Harvard players saved multiple match balls against him and won. So all of a sudden, a three-one lead that could have been four-one or even worse was tied at three-all, and uh, Harvard managed to win one of the other matches, and that got the match the outcome to the number one match uh, between um, between Marwan Tarek. Uh, and uh, and um, and uh, and and uh, I'm sorry, Muhammad, uh, and Muhammad Sharaf, Sharaf, <clears throat> and Tarek, who was a great player for Harvard, he won the uh, he won he won the individual championship in 2020, uh, won that match in four games, and that gave Harvard the championship. But Harvard was very Trinity was very close to winning that dual meet, and that would have been an extraordinary capper to Paul's career to have won the. Potter Cup for an 18th time. He and Barnaby both won 17 national championships. So that would have given Paul the all-time record. And again, he came within a point or two of that ha- of that happening. So that was incredibly exciting. And uh, and the Women's Howe Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this about last this past season: never in the history of college squash, to my knowledge, have there been both a Howe Cup and a Potter Cup, both of which were that close. One or the other, perhaps, in, in a given year, but never both at the same time. And in the How Cup, uh, which was played at Penn, Trinity, the Trinity women were heavy favorites to win because they had gone undefeated during the season. And, and in midseason, they'd marched into uh, into the Merce Center in Cambridge, Harvard's home courts, and administered a 7-2 thrashing that was probably not even as close as the score. Harvard had won seven, 102, which is an all-time, record for women's squash, 102 consecutive dual meets dating back to uh, to 2015 coming into that dual meet. And they were in their own building. And Trinity, which was bolted by a bunch of new, uh, very talented freshmen, came into Harvard's lair and thrashed them 7-2. So they were overwhelmed. And Harvard also almost lost to Columbia later in the year. The Harvard women's team was much more vulnerable than when they had Gina Kennedy and uh, and Sabrina Sobe and and uh, that whole group. They did not have a superstar of that of that level to be leading them. Uh, anyway, at the in the finals of the of the of the of the intercollegiates, um, 
Trinity, uh, Harvard had to flip three matches and did flip the, all three matches, and they wound up winning 5-4. Uh, again, there were um, uh, w- one of their players, Saran Gregory, uh, had double match point in the fourth game, but lost it and was down 4-1 in the fifth and won, the, and won 10 of the last 13 points. Uh, and both Breck and Welch and Amira Singh, two of other Harvard players, all both had match points against them as well. So uh, it got... But Harvard ended up getting the match to their number one player, uh, Marina Stefanoni, who's won a number of national junior championships. Uh, and she won her match uh, three straight over an opponent who had given her trouble the last time they played. So Harvard wound up winning both of those championships. But Trinity was a handful of points from being a double winner themselves. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, an amazingly yeah. close college season. Yeah, that that's an incredible uh, college squash season, an incredible Potter Cup. And one other thing, one other thing too, the How Cup was played on the weekend of uh, February seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth. The nineteenth was a was the was the to the day was the one hundredth anniversary of the very first college squash match in which Harvard played Yale on February nineteenth, nineteen twenty three, at the Racket and Tennis Club in New York. Uh, Harvard won that match, but but this was the 100th anniversary season of the first ever college match. So there were milestones everywhere you looked, basically. What an incredible season, and that's why we have you on, Rob, because uh, yeah, th- this this stuff is pure gold. Uh, now, just uh, I, I just going back to that. I mean, uh, um, Paul told me that he didn't tell anybody, didn't tell any, and even his players that he was about to uh, retire, but I'm sure they must have sort of felt that that was coming and, and the fan base must have felt it was coming. So combined. Everybody, everybody sensed it. I mean, yeah. again, he didn't say anything, but, but he'd had healthy problems. In fact, he just recently had a hip replacement just in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, he never declared it. He never announced it, but it was in the air. And I'm sure the players were very motivated to, you know, try to give him as great, as good a last season as possible. Yes. Now, just in terms of the the individual side, you mentioned it uh, in terms of Mohammed Sharaf, but uh, individually, ir- ironically, Harvard didn't uh, didn't win anything. Uh, they got well, they, to- didn't win, they didn't win anything, but they they had if if Sharaf was the star of the tournament, a uh, Harvard number two player, George Crown, was a very very close second. Um, what happened was. Um, Canadian boy. On the Thursday after the Potter Cup, and really just on the eve of the individual championships, which were being held at the Spectre Center in Philadelphia starting Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, there was a, a Harvard alumni celebration of the of the hundred years and of the fact that these two teams had both won their championships at the Harvard Club of New York. And Marwan Tarek, who was seated second and considered, you know, one of the people who, had, who was a real favorite to win that event, did not go to the event, not go to the Harvard Club of New York event. He went straight to Philadelphia to be there early to rest up and get ready for the tournament that lay ahead. But George Crown, the number two player and the co-captain from Canada, who had had a great, great season, although he'd lost his Trinity match in the Potter Cup final, was at the event. And he told... Dylan Patterson, a former Harvard captain who was sort of the MC of the of the party at the Harvard Club, that if he won his very first match the very next day, he'd be he'd, he'd sign up for that right then. He'd be happy with it. Um, not not only did he win his first match, but he then won his quarterfinal as well, 
And in the semifinal against Veer Chotrani, the great uh, Cornell player who had beaten Marwan the night before, uh, he saved. He was in, he was two points from losing in both the third and fourth games. Won them both, and then won the fifth. So he got to the final um, before losing to Sharaf. And it, the, the irony sort of is, or not irony, but you have to wonder if Marwan placed a little too much pressure on himself by missing the party and going early to to Philadelphia because he played a little bit of a scared late part of the fifth game. He was he was actually ahead of Veer. Uh, nine seven three and nine seven, but lost the last four points, and that got veered to the semis where he. And at that point, by the way, after that first day of play, it looked for a moment like Cornell might have two champions because Chotrani looked to be in as good a position as anyone to win the tournament at that stage, having beaten Tarek, and Siva 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 Gasari, the women's uh, great player who'd won the individuals the year before was in the semis of her event. Mm-hmm. So it looked briefly like like they might actually win both championships. They wound up winning neither. Veer, as I say, lost to Crown, who then lost to Sharaf, who played an immaculate a match. And uh, and Siva lost to Simi Chan uh, of Colombia, who had beaten um who had beaten the 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 star Harvard player, uh Marina Stefanoni in the in the semifinals. So but yeah, briefly it looked like David Palmer it looked like David Palmer, the the coach at Cornell, might actually have two champions, which would be remarkable. Of course, Cornell was not a contending team. Right. Yeah. The. Uh, I mean, I was going to say that uh, perhaps you know he missed that opportunity. Um, I'm speaking of um, Marwan Tarek, maybe uh, of of soaking up a bit of that history and and right. using that to his advantage uh, heading into. That's right. Right. Because there was tremendous. No, don't forget, Marwan had just won the Potter Cup clinching match four days earlier. And there was a tremendous amount of adulation that was that was showered on him, although we couldn't hear it because he wasn't in the building, that, that was showered on him that night. Um, in fact, in my speech, uh, I, I mentioned how far Marwan had come because um, in his... When he arrived for the Ivy scrimmage at the preseason event, he arrived in New Haven his freshman year for the Ivy scrimmages, and when he opened his bag, he realized that his shoes were back in back in Cambridge. He had not brought, brought his sneakers with him. Yeah. And he had to borrow Timmy Brownell's pair of spare sneakers to play his matches the first two days. Finally, somebody drove his shoes down to him up for him to play with them on Sunday. Ironically, he won the two matches he played in Timmy's sneakers and lost the one match he played in his own. But wow. okay. that was the official. Uh, clear, clearly, he's not a superstitious type then. <laughs> right. That, but that was the inauspicious start of Marwan's Harvard career, showing up at the preseason scrimmages without his shoes. And he went from there to winning the individuals and then winning the deciding clinching match in the in the Potter Cup his senior year. And again, he would have it, he would have been on the receiving end of a lot of praise and heard it if he'd been at that party. And it's a shame he wasn't at it. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks so much for that insight, Rob. That's a, that's really uh, tremendous stuff. Let's uh, let's move on now to I know uh, a scene that's re- that's near and dear to your heart because you you're a real big part of it, the pro double scene. And as I mentioned uh, earlier on, I used to follow it quite regularly, thanks to 
to uh, squash talk and, and all of your, your great writing there. Uh, many of us now, I don't think, uh, unless you're in the U S uh, uh, maybe not privy to, uh, what's going on with the doubles events. Uh, you do, I, I think you do, uh, post some, some write-ups and updates on the daily squash report and, uh, and maybe some other uh, websites out there, but uh, how has the season played out? Uh, I guess it just ended, as you mentioned. Uh, how yep. did it play out this season? And uh, just in terms of the pro double scene, um, how's it getting along? Well, that's, it, it was an interesting season and in some ways a unique season. The very the first seven events of the year, seven, were each won by seven different teams. That's uh, crazy. That, 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 that's never happened. Right, and the theoretical <laughs> maximum of 14 different players. Now, and this is a tour that for years, I mean, the last four events, the last four tournaments of the previous season's tour, the 21-22 tour, all of them were won by Chris Callis and Manic Mather. Hmm. So, and again, they were mitigating circumstances. Uh, uh, Chris got injured and had to miss a match. Uh, the Briggs Cup fell during his honeymoon. He'd actually... Um, he got, he got married in 2021, but there was no honeymoon because of COVID. And the Briggs Cup, which is the most lucrative stop on the tour uh, at the Apawamas Club, uh, named in honor of Peter Briggs, the longtime head pro there, was scheduled to take place in October of this past October 2022. And Chris called the club and said, I just want to make sure your event is happening in October 2022, right? They said yes. And he then scheduled his honeymoon for December of 2022. Uh, but during the summer, uh, the Apple people decided to reschedule their event at, in, a, in December and it fell right in Chris's honeymoon. So um, so he missed that event, unfortunately for him. Uh, and he was still, he's still, he's, he's still the best player. He still was the number one player on the tour. He won, uh, at, well, he won one event, one of the seven events with Manic. Uh, and then, there were other things about the season, one of which was that Monik Mathur, who's been, who was the player of the year, who's been player of the year for the past five years. The only year he wasn't was when he ruptured Achilles tendon in 2018 and missed the rest of that season and made a great comeback for that. He and Callis, as I say, dominated the latter part of the 21-22 tour. And uh, he's been, and he has been, he's regarded rightfully so as the best player at least in the past half dozen years since Damien Mudge retired, and one of the four or five best players in the history of the doubles tour. Um, he was a star player and a co-captain on Trinity's championship teams of the last part of the first decade of the 2000s. Uh, and, he had, and he and Mudge went undefeated for a whole season in 2017-18, Mudge's last year. Anyway, he announced in midseason that he was going to retire at the after the Brook after the Heights Casino event in Brooklyn, which took takes place in late February, and um, as you can imagine, <laughs> there was a lot of interest in that event as a result. And in fact, Monik's mother Arati Amathur traveled from India to be in Brooklyn to watch her son play his final match. And the, the Hollywood script would have had Mather and Callis winning that winning that tournament and him riding off into the sunset, uh, but. They lost in the final to James Stout and Scott Arnold. Um, uh, and uh, and then Chris had to sort of find other partners for the uh, for the events that remained. Uh, and he actually won uh, both in Boston. He won with different partners in, in Boston and Cleveland, I think it was. Um, so anyway, Mathers, not only his retirement, but his retirement coming in midseason with very short notice 
uh, changed the dynamic of that tour a fair amount in the in what preceded it and what followed. He has been working in real estate for the past couple of years, and he just decided, A, to concentrate on that, and B, that trying to do both of them, he, he was starting to have little niggling injuries, and he just didn't feel he could make the pro- proper commitment to squash and play at the level he'd established for himself you know, while he was also doing real estate. So anyway, he did that. The other interesting thing development, which happened very late in the season, and I, I don't know quite what the carryover will be or, or what will be voted on going forward, but uh, two of the last three events of the year were played with the games not, not to 15 points with whoever, whoever you know, at 14 all, whoever wins the next point wins, but they were played to 11 points Ooh. with the understanding that the winner... The PSA style? The PSA stuff, exactly. Um, you had to get to 11 with a clear margin of two. So if it was 10 all, it would be well then With the one a change that at 14 all, if it got that far, whoever won the next point would win the game. Sudden death, okay. Yeah, sudden death at 14 all. But, uh, but now, again, it's so that's similar. Exciting. To that's PSA. exciting. I, li- I like that. Uh, well, it's, um, it's, uh, it's so similar to the PSA uh, scoring that you have to think that, that that had the role to play in the decision to do this. Now, this was done as an experiment hmm. uh, uh, at the Kellner Cup in New York and um, – there was one other event, I think, Cleveland, in which it was done that way. That's right. It was Cleveland. Uh, I think the board is going to vote this summer on whether to extend that or whether to go back to the 15-point scoring. But I will say... What, what's your what, what's your opinion on that, Rob? Are you allowed to divulge that uh, here today? <laughs> I wonder, I'm sorry. What's my preference? Yeah, yeah. What what what's your opinion uh, on the on scoring? Well, I played. Do you prefer, I played in the like one, the eleven point scoring. I played in the one in New York, and um, I will say that having it be eleven, not fifteen, does give a sense of urgency, mm-hmm. even to the first opening half of that. The opening several points. I mean, if you're down seven two in a fifteen point game, you have time to catch up. If you're down seven two to eleven, it's going to take a lot more to do that. Um, I think that some of the reasoning behind the, the idea was that um, it was felt the doubles matches, especially especially at the pro level, um, there's the points go awfully long. I mean, everybody everybody's hitting so hard and is such good retrievers, and the court is so hot that it's really hard to you know to hit an early point winner. And the feeling was that the games were going on a little too long. Uh, for for the spectators, you know, interest and and uh, and that it would just be better to sort of sharpen everything and make it and make it a much more uh, concise game. And and to some degree, I think, you know, sitting in the gallery watching the late rounds, that kind of thing, I think that that the that the spectators really liked it and felt that uh, appreciated it, which was your immediate reaction as well. And uh, and uh, and I I think the odds are I think it's again. The vote, nothing's been sent out yet. I don't even know if the players are going to get to vote or if it's just going to be the board that votes. But I think it's more likely than unlikely that at least the SDA, the Squash Doubles Association, will adopt that formula, you know, make it permanent uh, into next season and, and not, you know, be done with the game for 15 thing. Whatever happens with U.S. Squash and the amateur remains to be seen as well. Um, they did not do that with any of their tournaments, but I'm sure they're aware of what the SDA did with those, you know, two tournaments in, in the spring. And um, 
I wouldn't be shocked if it's 11 points mean, across the you board. You mean the amateur doubles or the amateur singles? Amateur doubles. Amateur okay. doubles. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, the amateur events this past year, including the U.S. Nationals, were all played with the normal 15-point scoring. The only the only time it was 11-point were two SDA events in the spring, two pro doubles events. I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's going to be 11 points from now on and the, and the uniformity with the, the single scoring is going to be a little bit of a factor encouraging that as well. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. Uh, I guess it just depends on, uh, you know, those who are on the board, if there's a, if it's tradition laden, they they might side with tradition, but uh, you might know better than that. Well, if it's tradition laden, you know, they probably wouldn't have experimented with the eleven point scoring system in the first place. So, yeah. it's it's not a, you know, it's it's a it's a fairly progressive board, I think, and they and they're very aware of a player and spectator reaction to things. Um, so, I think that that's what will happen. By the way, there were a number of PSA faces on the on the SDA events, as you probably know, as I mentioned before, Cameron Pilly and Ryan Caskelli have been a team ever since they both retired from the PSA tour pretty much together a few years ago. And they were one of the seven teams that won a tournament. It would happen to be a small event at Ryan's Club in Darien, Connecticut. Um, I, I think the expectation was that they were going to have a breakthrough win against a top team like you know, Mathur Callis or Stout Arnold, et cetera, this year, this year, this past season. And that did not ever happen. Yeah. Pilly, you would think, I mean, that guy just, uh, I guess he has the record for the hardest hit ball on, on a saw on the right. softball, right. but uh, you know, doubles, is a different, uh, different game altogether. Double squash. So uh, I guess the, well, he's still hitting yeah. a pretty hard, he's still hitting a pretty hard forehand on the doubles court <laughs> also. I bet. Don't forget that's a much, that's a much faster ball than a singles ball uh, than a softball, and uh, you know he can he can impart a lot of pace to it. His wife, his wife Lena Hansen, yeah. uh, played a, most of the few women's pro doubles events. That's another thing. The SDA this year was the for the first time had both the men and women's tours under their same umbrella. Um, and there were not uh, nearly as many women's events as there were men's events, but there were over a half dozen. And she got to the finals of the Briggs Cup along with Gina Stoker, her partner. The, the, unlike the singles, where there was a different winning team every week, uh, the women's doubles tour was pretty much dominated um, uh, uh, by Kaylee Leonard and Maria Elena Ubina, who had been star players in college. Both of them grew up playing at you know private clubs in the Granite Rye area, and they're both very good doubles players and a very good doubles team together. Excellent. And and the tour itself, Rob, uh, how how are things uh, sit, uh, sort of sitting now? Uh, things. It, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's at a bit of an inflection point, I think. There were some events this year that were scheduled and did not uh, happen. Mm -hmm. There were some sites from previous years that uh, that have had events that didn't have them this year. Uh, but there were also some sites that hadn't had been for a while, but that reemerged, uh, like in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, for example. Uh, so uh, there was uh, there were a couple of mixed events scheduled, but only one of them happened. Uh, they're sort of um, I think people think of this as having been a good active season uh, because there were fourteen you know sanctioned ranking tournaments, which is a pretty you know pretty healthy uh, schedule over the course of those six months or so. Uh, but um, uh, it's interesting to see what happens with pro doubles. It's not. It's not like it's booming the way you know whatever pickleball might well, be. Back in the day, no. I mean, back in the day, uh, uh, and I refer back to. Maybe I'm wrong here. I refer back to 
as I did uh, the squash talk days. I mean, I, I thought back then, uh, it seemed to me anyways, uh, that the double scene was, uh, I guess you could say, booming back then. Well, Gary Waite was a very strong personality, uh, and he had, a, you know, he was a great Canadian player, had a lot to do with uh, that tour's um, health. And you're absolutely right. There was um, uh, there's a period in the first decade of the 2000s where where double squash was getting bigger every year. I do think that, like you know, every all other forms of squash and every other sport, I think the COVID really made a really you know dampen things considerably. And in fact, last season, 21-22. The Omicron outbreak in early January forced many of those tournaments to be pushed into the spring months or canceled altogether. This past season, thankfully, was the first COVID-free season since 2018-19, really. And um, and I think given that, I think the SDA has you know, done a pretty good job of providing uh, uh, a solid schedule for its players. Uh, well, that's excellent. Looking forward to uh, the upcoming uh, season, especially now, uh, you know, given, I guess, Chris Cal- Chris Callis, as you said, uh, was the one uh, common denominator, I guess, throughout the season. But, uh, you know, next season, uh, it bodes well for for any number of teams to to uh, to to win a few of those events. Right. Absolutely. And one other thing, too, I was I realized this, especially during the uh, the tournament, the racket and tennis in the, in the spring. Manic and Chris Callis won that event last year. Uh, this year, Callis was playing in the final, but with Michael Ferreira, they went up losing to to uh, to, to Staten Arnold. Uh, but um, Manic was in the gallery uh, watching the matches, and I was sitting in the gallery myself. I was very aware. I was at both finals, and I was very aware of the contrast between him being on the court as the dominant force the year before, and him being, you know, in the gallery with everybody else, you know, a few this past spring. And uh, I know a lot of because he had such a charismatic game. So there was so there was so there were there was thunder in his racket. I mean, he had this, he had the softest touch and about the hardest pace of anybody on the tour and, and move like a cat out there. Hmm. I think there was a feeling that the tour would, you know, was going to suffer from losing a player of that magnitude in mid season. But I realized during the tournament, uh, these tournaments are for the players who are there. They're not for the players who aren't. And even though Manic was not playing, there were six great teams battling it out in the late rounds of that tournament. And, you know, the, the one thing that the SDA does not lack for is a, a whole host of really good players and really good teams. Absolutely. Uh, it, it does sound, it does bode well for, for next season in terms of that, Rob. It, it, at least it sounds that way. But uh, you've been tremendous with your time. And I know you released a, a book in December and you mentioned the, the Briggs Cup a couple of times already. Briggs Cup history uh, was released right. uh, this past December, and uh, I remember growing up like I'd always I'd, I'd read you know I'd get the uh, Squash Canada uh, uh, publications and read through it, and occasionally I'd see something about the Briggs Cup in there, and I was oh what's this? Uh, and I think may- maybe a few people might have heard of it, but don't know much about it. Well, your book uh, would would spell everything out, I'm sure. So just uh, give us a bit of a thumbnail, if you don't mind, about the Briggs Cup and uh, maybe uh, about your your book as well. What What's in the book and what it's all about and why you decided uh, that was a book that you wanted. Uh, that was your next book, basically. Well, the, to some degree, the Apawamas Club people decided that. Uh, as it happened, the Briggs Cup, which began in 2003, 
uh, and always had the biggest purse of any of any tournament on the tour, which it was a hundred thousand initially. Um, that is a biennial event. It happens every other year, not every year. So as it happens, the Briggs Cup that took place this past December was the was the milestone tenth edition of the Briggs Cup, and to sort of mark that milestone, uh, the members there. Uh, with a little persuading on my part, uh, decided to have me write a book chronicling the entire history of the Cup, meaning all nine editions of the Cup that have preceded the 10th one that was held in December. The book was released during that 10th Briggs Cup this past December. Hmm. And uh, the Briggs Cup has, has a unique concept. It was uh, the members there, when they started in 2003, decided that they wanted the event to have a higher purpose than just a sort of good competitive opportunity for uh, players and the pro and the, the amateurs who played in the pro-am. It was right around then that the urban squash uh, organizations were forming and starting to have some, uh, some, some impact. And also, you know, to make it easier uh, for members to donate money for the Bridge Cup, they decided to designate City Squash, the Urban Squash Association based in the Bronx and run by Tim Wyant at the time, as the official charity of the event. And there's always been, that event has always been really, most doubles events are for, for, the, for the players and the spectators. This one has always had at least a three a three pronged set of interests. Hmm. Metros, uh, City Squash, the charity, is one. Uh, the members is another. There, there's a there are lots of pro am events that the members participate in. It's very members oriented, and then the pros and their championship is the third the third prong. But it's been it's always been a three prong priority, not a one prong priority. Hmm. And um, and the event itself has had you know an amazingly rich history. There were uh, there were there's never been of the ten Briggs Cups. It's never been the case that the same team has won the Briggs Cup even twice, much less two times in a row. Damian Mudge. Wow. Five, maybe about one five times, but with each time with a different partner, um, and uh, and uh, so it's always and given how 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 many long stretches there were when one double team was a dominant team, it's very unusual that, that, that an event wouldn't yeah, I was have. Say, I mean, that, that's unusual, isn't it? Uh, right. For pro well, doubles part, the two, up until the this season, thing, as you mentioned, right? Yeah, the two year thing is accounts for some of that some of that difference, but uh, in any event, the the, the events had. Um, has had just uh, some remarkable things attached to it. I mean, as one example, in the 2015 Briggs Cup, which is the first Briggs Cup that had both men and women in it, uh, Chris Walker could not even play because he was coming, he lived nearby, but he was coming off a hip replacement operation. Uh, and um, and uh, 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 James Stout uh, lost in the first round, um, spacing out on the names of the two women who did, but that weekend, uh, James met the, the woman in the other in the in the women's room who turned out to be his wife, and so did Chris Walker. There were actually two. There were two marriages, and now three children and counting that have resulted just from chance meetings in the galleries between rounds at the 2015 Briggs Cup. That's uh, something you spell you that's uh, that's in part of the book, uh, Rob. Oh, oh, absolutely. Okay, uh, yeah, book, of course it would be. Yeah. The book has a ton of anecdotes of things that happened, you know, on the court. There were there were uh, Maddox Mather and Yvonne Bodden had their first breakthrough win at the 2011 Briggs Cup. Uh, Mudge and Gould were Damian Mudge and Ben Gould, who were the overwhelming favorites, who had been undefeated the whole year before. We're headed, we had match points on them in the third game. 
but 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 uh, Mather and Baden, both of whom at the time were pros at the Apple, assistant pros under Briggs, managed to win that match and then win the final against uh, Clive Leach and Matt Jensen. I mean, there have been some. There were there were there were two consecutive Briggs Cups in which the winning team had to fend off match balls against them. So there have been some very very exciting matches in the Briggs Cup, uh, but there have also been all sorts of anecdotes associated with off with off court events associated with the tournament. So the Briggs Cup basically has a very, very colorful history. And it was really quite exciting and enjoyable for me to, you know, dig into and, and f- find out about all of it and uh, and interview probably 60 people who were involved in the Briggs Cup over the years. And uh, and really, it's a book that I feel very good about. And I know that Peter Briggs, um, whenever anybody comes into that club, the first thing he does is grab them and, and show them the book right away. I mean, he's, I think he's, I think he's very, very excited about this book, which sort of a tribute to him as well as to the members, as well as to the club, as well as to the players. And uh, if anyone wants to, uh, you know, to purchase the book or take a look at, uh, at it a bit more closely, do they go to uh, the daily squash report? Is that, uh, is it posted up there or on your um, own personal website? It's not there at this point. Uh, the thing to do is uh, either contact the Millennium Printing Corporation, uh, in uh, which is just outside of Boston, which has been the printer not only for that book, but for all of the books I've done in the half dozen years, okay. uh, and um, and or uh, contact Peter Briggs at, at Apple They've got a, they've got I think it's a number of back issues or remaining copies, and that you know I think that they would be a source for that as well. Okay, so Peter Briggs at Apawamas or uh, the Millennium yeah, Millennium Printed Cup Corporation, uh, which is just outside of Boston. Yeah. All right, great, great, Rob. Uh, now we've we've been talking about uh, a lot of stuff there, mostly doubles related, uh, but I wanted to get your take on uh, U.S. on on the PSA tour. Um, if you don't mind, uh, U.S. squash has received a huge, huge lift from the ladies of late. Amanda, Sabrina, uh, and Sabrina they have. Yep. Olivia Fector, uh, Fector and uh, Olivia Klein all inside, uh, well, yep. all inside the top 20 and uh, Amanda and Olivia inside the top 10. Uh, right. and the men, the men uh, I mean, there, there's something, uh, you know, the, the guys are young and they're they're sort of struggling to get to make a, yep. you know, that big breakthrough. But there are several of them. I mean, you've got Andrew Douglas, you've got Shah Jahan Khan, you, Timmy Brownell, who you mentioned, Spencer Lovejoy. Uh, and there are others there as well, and they're they're all making uh, inroads. I think. I think so. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that? Well, I think you've stated the situation perfectly. Uh, the, uh, they're good. They're a bunch of very good young men's players who most of them fairly recently out of out of college, like Douglas, uh, like Spencer Lovejoy, who uh, who graduated from Yale a few years ago and who got to the finals of the. S.O. Green, the the U.S. National Closed Championship, uh, which took place a few weeks ago, also at the Spectre Center. Uh, Timmy Brownell won that event the year before, beating Todd Harrity in the final. Uh, uh, and he's certainly a factor on the tour as well. And there, uh, as you say, there's uh, there's some other players. None of them yet. Ha- I mean, Todd is probably st- might still be the highest ranked of them, and he's somewhere in the 30s. None mm-hmm. of them have yet really made a, a, a real inroad into the tour the way the women have. But uh, but they're they're good players. They're solid players. They're motivated players, and they've got their. Um, they're their all really likable guys too. 
I mean, yeah, I, I like him, I've spoken to, uh, to Timmy Brownell and the yeah, guy yeah. couldn't be, uh, I mean, he's got a great sense of humor. He's smart. Yeah. Uh, Love joy. Yeah. I've spoken to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just on, on the WhatsApp, but, uh, he seems like a good fella. Shah Jahan, he's focused. <laughs> that guy, he, he's very focused and he's a professional. Yeah. And they all, and most of them are training most days sort of, uh, you know, under a coach, under a coach at the Spectre Center. You know, that is the U.S. National Training Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, their, their practices are intense and focused and, and, uh, and are gonna, they're, they're all making each other better. Uh, so um, I think, you know, Todd at this point is, is in his 30s. Uh, he he won the SL Green three times, and as I said, he got to the final last year. Although we lost this year uh, in the quarters, I think it was. Uh, but he's still a good, uh, you know, a good solid player, and uh, someone who I think some of the younger players look up to a little bit as well. And he's you know a sterling character. He's just um, he's a he's a really good guy. Uh, so again, I, I think that I think there are more more good men players. Also, you know, there's a number of recent college players who are not from the U.S., uh, like Ella, like uh, Ali Alalainen. I mean, there's some others as well who played. Victor Cruen played for Harvard all these years. Victor's doing great. Uh, Yusuf so Ibrahim, huh? Yusuf Ibrahim as well. Yeah, Yusuf as well. He's had some knee issues. I just but- saw. I just saw. He just played uh he just played mohammed el shabag in the world open and it's the, for the first time he looks like he might be back i mean he looked i mean he's electrifying that guy uh, he's i don't I, I wouldn't want to miss any match that he played he's so electrifying he's a he's got a very very aggressive uh you know <laughs> he's got a lot of firepower in his racket he can shoot he can run he can hit by the way a sign of how good the individuals are is that uh, Victor Cruen beat both D- uh, Douglas and Ibrahim to win that event, you know, in 2022, right before he graduated. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, that kind of works with the American coaching system as well. Uh, but but certainly American, the actual American players, the ones you mentioned, are, 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 are good, solid players who I think are virtually all committed to be playing on this tour for, you know, for years, for certainly years to come. They're not just doing this for a year or two before they take a job at some bank or something like that. Um, yeah. And the women, and the women uh, I mean, uh, Rob, uh, uh, and, and the women obviously uh, couldn't be more impressed. Second in the world team championships as well. Uh, they were very close to getting a win. Amanda almost had uh, Nora and Gohar there uh, yep. in, in that event. But uh, I mean, how classy uh, are they? They're very, they're very good players. Uh, they've uh, every one of them at one point or another has had good wins against some of the top ranked Egyptian players. Uh, Amanda has been she got she lost in the quarters uh, of the uh, of the World Open just now, but she got to the semis of the of the British Open. She's been a pretty frequent semifinalist in in uh, and one other thing too, and I think this is kind of revealing of the fact that at this point the American women are doing better on a global level than the American men. At the U.S. National Championships uh, this past the, a couple of weeks ago, um, when Douglas won the, the men's event and Amanda won the women's event over Victor, uh, they actually had the men's event first because the women's event was sort of you know really the highlight of the night, given how high ranked in, on a world sta- on a world level the top women players are. So that's, you know, that's kind of unusual. And, and again, Amanda right now, Amanda is the face of American squash. Yeah. And rightfully so. I mean, she she's really stepped her game up. She was always, she was already very good, but uh, right. I love watching her play now. I mean, she's got such a skill set, great hands, yep. 
that little that little sort of short volley that she has on yeah. both backhand yeah. and forehand, and she's uh she's physically uh yeah. as strong as any of those top girls right now. Yeah, great great athleticism. I want to make one other point too, and that is that uh, both Amanda and Ali Farag. Um, who just won the World Open for the fourth time and won the British Open a few weeks earlier. They are both products of Coach Way at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, I, he was, uh, he was front and center there at the World Open as well. Uh, he's, with, he's, uh, whenever Ali's in trouble, he calls Mike and flies him out to wherever wherever he is. Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, but, I mean, Coach Way, he, is, he now has coached two number one players, uh, Jonathan Power and Ali Farag. As a junior coach, he produced well over 100 national junior champions. And uh, at Harvard, uh, he's been the coach there for 12 seasons. The women have won the How Cup 11, uh, 10 of those 12 and lost 5-4 in the finals the other two times. So he's two matches from going 12 for 12. Uh, and I, the men uh, won- can, I, can I ask you for a favor, Rob? That's that. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great, that's, that, there's a book right there. Well, there is a book right there, which I've already written about, about Harvard squash during the Mike Way coaching era. Uh, the Mike Way biography, though. Oh, I'm game. Anytime, I, <laughs> anytime yeah, he wants I, I don't want anyone else but you. <laughs> okay. And I don't want to write a biography of anybody else but, but Coach Way. He's a remarkable person in addition to being a tremendous coach. Yeah, I mean, I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting him a few times and uh, having a couple of beers with him back in uh, back in Nova Scotia in Halifax when he was passing through uh, in the late '80s. Uh, back then, mm-hmm. he was a national treasure, uh, and then he obviously uh, took that to uh, you know to Harvard and to Jonathan Power. But a great guy, and um, yeah, definitely uh, think about that, or, or hopefully that's something you'll you'll consider, Rob. Um, I'd love to write it. Um, at any rate, uh, Rob, always uh, amazing stuff when you come on. And, uh, you know, it was a bit, uh, I think it was close to six months uh, since, or four months, I guess, since the last time you came on. But uh, let's do it again soon, maybe before the, the start of the, the college season. I look forward to that a great deal. Thank you very much, sir. Always a pleasure. Be well. Well, Rob Dinrin, he never ceases to amaze. Always a pleasure having him on. And if you're interested in picking up the book or any of Rob's books, uh, for that matter, contact the Millennium Printing uh, Corporation or uh, for the Briggs book in particular, uh, the history of the Briggs uh, Cup in particular, contact Peter Briggs at the Apawamis uh, Club there. And also uh, check out all of, you can also check out all of Rob's books uh, over the years by visiting his uh, website, robdinnerman.com, and you can see everything he has uh, on offer. We've talked about several of them, the the history of Harvard under Mike Way, uh, the sheriff of, of squash, Sharif Khan, that's a, a great read. Uh, I've read both of those, and uh, really, really good stuff there, and there's a lot, a lot more that you definitely might find of interest, so check out the robdinnerman.com uh, website uh, to check out all of his 
uh, books that he's written over the years, and also some of the great stuff that he's, uh, he's writing uh, can be found at the Daily Squash Report. He's a frequent contributor there. So uh, many thanks again to Robin. Looking forward to having him on, hopefully uh, before the start of the, squa- of the uh, U.S. college squash season and the, the new season of U.S. Pro Doubles. Always great catching up with him. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we're hoping to have on the resurging and immensely talented and exciting Yusuf Ibrahim. He showed up uh, in a pretty big way there when he played at the World uh, World Championships and when he played uh, Mohamed El Shabagi. What a match that was. I mean, uh, he lost it obviously, but uh, uh, the quality and the, the exciting squash that he plays, I think he had shot of the year there with that little uh, top spin backhand uh, front court uh, uh, winner that he, that he hit, and that's been, uh, that, that went viral there a few, uh, maybe about a week or so ago. Amazing shot. He's actually in Dubai uh, right now in my neck of the woods, so I'm hoping to, uh, to maybe even uh, meet up with him uh, over the next couple of days, if not definitely uh, get the podcast in with with Yusuf Ibrahim and also uh, what we've got something to look forward to here the guys from uh, squash analytics are going to come on and we're going to break down uh, perhaps the world open or the season to date and we'll see what sort of uh, numbers they're crunching over at squash analytics analytics and uh, much much more uh, wow it's Friday it's the weekend and uh, really excited about that I hope you guys have a great weekend as well enjoy your squash And uh, we'll be talking to you very soon. Again, thanks for listening and take care. Goodbye now.